Evidence in Motion is excited to be back to hands-on learning for the first in-person Align conference in more than two years. If you've attended in the past, you know that the content is awesome. And if you haven't, this is a great year to add it to your calendar. The event features an all-star lineup of speakers and hands-on lab options that will allow you to build your own track based on what you want to learn. Align will be held in Dallas, Texas, August 26th through the 28th. JOSPT Insights podcast listeners get an exclusive 10% discount when you use the code JOSPTPODCAST10. That's JOSPTPODCAST10. Register soon. Early bird pricing ends July 1. Learn more at alignconference.com. That's alignconference.com. Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. How confident do you feel to design and deliver a quality rehabilitation program for someone who's had a total knee replacement? Today we hear from one of the clinical research leaders in musculoskeletal rehabilitation after total joint replacement. Professor Jennifer Stevens-Lapsley from the University of Colorado and 2020 American Physical Therapy Association Catherine Worthingham Fellow shares her tips for clinical success and an update on the open research questions in the field. Plus, she'll give us the lowdown on the work that's going on to help provide answers to those important clinical questions. These are questions like, how do we best support people to stay physically active after joint replacement? What's the best approach to post-operative rehabilitation? Should we bother with prehabilitation? And what's the future for techniques like blood flow restriction training? Okay, here's the episode. Professor Jennifer Stevens-Lapsley, welcome to JOSPT Insights. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you, Jen, and I can't think of anyone better to walk us through how to translate what's a growing and a dynamic body of research on osteoarthritis, rehabilitation, and joint replacements to our day-to-day clinical practice. So I'm just going to jump straight in with our first question. What is the single most important thing that clinicians can get right to set the patient in front of them up for a successful outcome after a total knee replacement? My team and extended colleagues have spent the last 20 years trying to change the emphasis on just range of motion to focus more on physical function, which is really the rate limiting factor for ultimate full recovery after a knee replacement surgery. But the reality is, is that range of motion and even pain, which is highly related and the reason for um, people getting a knee replacement, they, they really don't define successful recovery after a knee replacement. And in fact, range of motion correlates very poorly with functional capacity after knee replacement. And there are a handful of people who really struggle with range of motion. And and for them, continuing to focus on range of motion is critical. But for the large majority of patients after knee replacement surgery, focusing on physical function is going to get them a lot farther in terms of meeting their ultimate goals of participation in activities in the community, sports, recreation. When we think about physical function, the other thing that we have really emphasized is not relying entirely on patient-reported outcomes to measure physical function. And the reason for that is 
early after surgery, patients' perceptions of their physical function are actually inverse or opposite of what their actual functional capacity is compared to their performance before surgery. And so it's important to actually measure the outcome because the lack of pain associated with that activity translates into a patient's perception that they're performing the task better than they were before surgery. Actually measuring physical function with tangible outcomes such as a timed up and go, two-minute walk test or the six-minute walk test, or a 30-second sit to stand so that you can actually monitor progress over time. So it sounds like what you're doing there, Jen, is really liberating us to think much more broadly about how we assess and monitor progress in a rehabilitation program. To be honest, some patients will focus on that knee range of motion, but not all. And the ones that do, it's really just because of that very specific kind of the quantifiable, they can see gains over time, right? It's like in, in engagement in the community. You know, what we see is that that the ability to engage in activities is limited by their quadricep strength and they're, they're more likely to fatigue or their knees more likely to swell up as a result of doing too much too early, too quickly in some cases, or in the long run, not having enough quadricep strength to sustain activities. And so when we think about getting people back to being able to participate fully in the things that they value most, the rate limiting step is that quadricep strength piece that translates into that functional performance, which then translates into the participation in the activities that they love. So that sounds like the single most important thing that clinicians can do to set the patient in front of them up for success is focus on getting quad strength back. Absolutely. That is, that's the, the if there was one take-home message from, from this particular dialogue, it would be to focus a little bit less on range of motion and quite a bit more on quadricep strength. Every conversation I have about knees comes back to quad strength. So we're getting, we're hitting on a really important theme here. Now, Jen, you've done a ton of research in this field, and I know that some of your more recent research is focusing on tailoring rehabilitation or personalizing a rehabilitation program to the patient in front of you. So can you tell us a little bit about what that tailored approach to musculoskeletal rehab after a total knee replacement looks like and why should we rethink our approach to providing musculoskeletal care? You know, we know that not all patients are the same, so we can't use a one-size-fits-all approach to provide care. At the same time, we also know that variation in practice is a huge problem. So we need to standardize the ways that we're tailoring care to individual patient needs. And that's a, that's a challenge, right? You're, you're asking clinicians to individualize care, but yet use a standardized approach to provide that individualized care so that you don't increase or, or make worse the, the concerns and the issues that we have with variation in practice. Some of the ways that we've advocated for doing this rely on the use of things like reference charts where you have population level outcomes. So for an example, in joint replacement, when we think about range of motion, we've published work describing these reference charts or, or sharing these reference charts. So population level data on what the norms look like for range of motion after knee replacement surgery. We've done the same thing for quad strength. We've done the same for swelling recovery. And it can be done for functional performance as well. And so if we use these reference charts, we can use those as a starting point to monitor clinical care. That helps us a little bit with that standardization concept because we're using an approach where we're evaluating whether people are above or behind kind of the typical averages of the population. 
And then we can target if they're behind in range of motion, then we can focus on that range of motion. But in most cases, they may be farther behind in, in areas like we talked about earlier, quad strength and or need to emphasize care focused on quadriceps strength. And you have a reference to be able to help guide the decision making around the priorities or the treatment priorities in this particular case. The other thing that we've been doing is we've developed a patients like me analytic approach. This analytic approach allows us to take a large database of patients who have received a knee replacement and match individuals or the person that's right in front of you to the top 10 or 15 people in that database that have similar baseline characteristics. And so by modeling care on people who've recently had a knee replacement that have similar characteristics, we're able to develop a trajectory of recovery for individuals who are now going through that procedure for the first time. And we can predict what we anticipate is going to be their outcome in the area of range of motion or quad strength or functional performance and use that to guide clinical care. And we're hopeful that that methodology will become more widely accessible and available as we continue to develop it, not only for patients with knee replacement, but other populations where clinicians can enter information into an app or a web website, and they can get back information regarding the trajectory of recovery that, again, is tailored to that individual relative to the population. That's so fascinating. And, and I think I can certainly see how in the clinic that could be incredibly useful because usually in the clinic you're working with one patient and you might be a, a specialist in osteoarthritis or joint replacement, but you may still only see you know 50, 100 patients a year. So to in to build up that database is, is really difficult. Whereas if you've got that, you know, big database from all across the country, let's say, I could imagine that that might form something that's really useful for clinicians. Absolutely. And, and again, that matching kind of algorithm, you know, you may not work regularly with the patient who wants to go back to skiing, or you may not work regularly with the patient who has a really, really low level of function, but being able to match people in that database to patients like them allows you as a clinician, like you said, if you don't see that population very often, to really tailor the care to meet that individual patient's need. Now, the other thing that I hear people talking a lot about when it comes to this tension between tailoring care to the individual and providing a certain standard of care is clinical practice guidelines. So where do you see clinical practice guidelines fitting into this this tension or this challenge of the individual versus the sort of standard of care? Great question, because the clinical practice guidelines were recently published for patients after knee replacement um, surgery, and I had the good fortune of being part of a really extraordinary team uh, in putting those together. And the guidelines are really important as a starting point for us to develop kind of best practice. If I had to summarize the guidelines for this population, a lot of the recommendations are still a little bit open-ended because there's still a lot to be learned about best practice. And Yet it does give us a stable starting point. So for example, the clinical practice guidelines do recommend that we use neuromuscular electrical stimulation and that that can be applied to the quadriceps muscle for muscle strengthening. Um, they also recommend progressive exercise and, and, and yet we've published and others have published mixed findings with respect to um, how progressive and how intensive you can be with post-operative exercise. And it may be that the activation deficits in the quadriceps muscle make it hard to do high-intensity strength training, but it's certainly safe to do in, in patients and certainly part of those recommendations. 
So they they give us kind of a, a starting point for for making some of those decisions. There's also clinical practice guidelines for this population around physical activity and encouraging physical activity and education around the importance of, of physical activity long term. There's a lot of evidence that had mixed evidence or not enough evidence to support a particular practice or recommendation. So there's still still additional work that needs to be done. While we're on this subject of the approach and the clinical approach, I'm gonna I want to pick up on a couple of things. Jen, one is about prehabilitation. What's the evidence? Where does prehab fit into clinical care for people with a joint replacement? So the evidence on prehabilitation is still very mixed. Um, and it's not clear whether that's because you know, patients with OA present with a variety of different kind of subgroups and 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 of, of OA itself, or because the types of rehabilitation approaches vary considerably across studies. But it's not clear as to what the true benefits are and how what the magnitude of benefit is with prehabilitation because of the, the variability in, in what we're seeing in, in current studies. However, it has been shown that even just a single visit before surgery helps with orientation. Patients have a sense of what to expect. Maybe they're given a neuromuscular electrical stimulation unit. Maybe they're given a set of exercises. Now, they may not be able to implement the exercises before surgery in a way that's going to translate into functional uh, strength change or, or functional gains, but they may be able to become more familiar with the types of things that they'll be doing after surgery. And so at the very least, some orientation visit before surgery has the potential to be very, very beneficial. But I think this is an area that we're continuing to, to try to understand. Where do you use your resources? Do you use them before surgery or do you wait until someone's had the surgery and use them on the back end and then really try and improve um, muscle strength function? As you say, that's a really live question. There's a, a biologically plausible rationale to do it here. But as you say, we're just lacking the evidence at the moment or it's a bit mixed and trying to tease out what is really going on and what is best bang for buck is still a question that we need to answer. Yeah. And, and you know, one thing I will mention is that my colleague, Thomas Boundholm from the University of Copenhagen has um, spent the last many months, almost a year with our group here at the University of Colorado. And he has recently shown that patients with osteoarthritis who participate in a prehab program of sorts or an exercise program have been able to delay the need for a knee replacement surgery. So Again, I think there's value to really further evaluating kind of in what cases and under what circumstances uh, is exercise or a more targeted prehab program indicated and how can it fit into our more holistic kind of model of, of care for, the, for this population that may or may not require an ultimate knee replacement surgery. Yeah, definitely, especially given how major a joint replacement is. Jen, the second part about, or the second question I had about rehabilitation program is about physical activity. You mentioned physical activity, and I want to just pick up on that briefly here. And we know that staying physically active across the lifespan has tons of health benefits, not only for our joint health, but you know for our, our physical and mental health broadly. Often people with painful joints find it difficult to exercise or to stay active and the joint replacement itself is supposed to help reduce the pain, reduce the symptoms, improve their function, and that includes physical activity. What happens to people's physical activity levels after they've had a joint replacement? Yeah, another really great question. Um, you know, patients tell us that as soon as they have their knee replacement surgery, they're going to be able to go back to 
their previous level of, of activity and, and participation, but that's not what the literature suggests. One of our PhD students, Sherry Ledoux, recently did an analysis of physical activity using the um, health and, and retirement study data set, a combined data set of community dwelling adults who were over the age of 55 and had symptomatic osteoarthritis and they uh, needed a knee replacement. And so she looked at a data set that included about 4,600 individuals and showed that when you looked at whether or not they engaged in vigorous or moderate level physical activities two years after surgery, there really wasn't any, there wasn't a high level of engagement in moderate or, vis- or vigorous levels of physical activity. And so despite people's best intentions, we don't necessarily see physical activity increasing um, in the large majority of patients. Now we um, are currently, one of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Corey Christensen and I are in the middle of a trial or, or near the final stages of a trial where we're really focused on increasing physical activity after joint replacement by intentionally using motivational interviewing techniques and um, focusing on behavioral modifications that may last well past the acute rehabilitation phase. And the hope is that maybe this sets individuals up for success in the long run. I guess when we're working with someone who's had a joint replacement, this physical activity piece is a bit about bridging the gap between the very intense sort of therapeutic exercise program that you're prescribing to help support someone to regain physical function, coupled with goal setting, coupled with some motivational interviewing perhaps to try to tease out what is it that the person wants to do and what are the barriers and the things that help promote that sort of behavior. So I guess I'm wondering, Jen, what would you recommend to folks listening to us today who are struggling with this challenge of how do I translate the sort of therapeutic exercise to the physical activity sort of exercise that we're, we're really talking about when we talk about physical activity and keeping helping people stay active across their lifespan? Yeah. So I think the key is, you know, to start small and kind of build in, in gradual steps. Um, and by starting small, you know, again, coming back to the importance of strengthening the quadriceps. One way to strengthen the quadriceps is obviously to use the quadriceps, right, through, through increased engagement of physical activity. But we also know that if you do too much too early, it can cause problems in terms of swelling and set people back. And it's a natural progression that people take two steps forward and one step back because they might have overdone it. So there really is kind of a, a, a progression, a systematic progression that's necessary and starting with that quadriceps strength piece and building quadriceps strength, and then uh, engaging individuals in uh, higher levels of physical activity by something as simple as step counts and having them monitor their step counts and increasing the amount or the percentage of, of gains each week may be a very viable way to just kind of gradually transition away from that rehab-specific exercise focus into the more kind of real-world translational element of uh, physical activity on a more regular basis. I love that. It's a really good, concrete, simple recommendation, as you say, that the step counts. Um, and that's something that's available to most people now with a smartphone. And, and we, we know that tons of people have got a smartphone in their pocket. And if not a smartphone, pedometers are a pretty cost-effective way of helping folks count their steps as well. So we love simple, quick, easy low-cost recommendations. Now, um, Jen, we're getting a much better understanding of osteoarthritis as a systemic disease, so having different effects across a body across the body system as opposed to, you know, a wear and tear 
in the joint or, or it's simply a worn out joint. And the implication is that if it's a worn out joint, once we replace it, everything's back to normal again. What do you see as high quality multidisciplinary healthcare after total joint replacement? So I'm, I'm deliberately making a distinction between high quality musculoskeletal rehabilitation that we've been talking about a lot and then broadening that to that sort of holistic approach to helping folks, helping to care for folks who have got either osteoarthritis or have had a joint replacement. Yeah, and that, t- that ties in nicely to the physical activity kind of discussion because that holistic care, that physical activity is helping them on a cardiovascular kind of basis as well as, as you know, specific to that knee joint. Um, you know, thinking about kind of that, the cardiovascular benefits of, of engaging in physical activity um, could be could be something that we could place much greater emphasis on. The other piece to think about is while we're focused on that very specific joint that's just had surgery, the next most likely joint to be replaced is the contralateral hip followed by the contralateral knee. And so when we think about holistic care and thinking about more just that one joint, we also need to be thinking about what's happening on the contralateral side if if this is a a primary knee replacement, the the first knee replacement that this individual has received. We're actually doing some work in this area to try and understand how osteoarthritis progression is influenced by weight bearing on that non-surgical side. And I think it's really interesting because when you think about someone who's just had a knee replacement, their non-surgical side is the one that takes the brunt of the load while they're recovering until their surgical leg becomes strong enough to, to bear weight more evenly or symmetrically. And so that may be why we're wearing out the other side, essentially, the other, the other lower extremity. Dr. Michael Boddy in here at the University of Colorado um, works very closely with my team and has led the charge on uh, movement pattern retraining to have a more symmetrical gait pattern and also look at whether or not that will prevent contralateral progression on the non-surgical side. Um, and that's only one part, one small part of kind of a more holistic approach but really trying to think about more than just the knee joint that's right in front of you and what are the sequelae with respect to low back pain or contralateral OA progression that we can prevent. Yeah, it's fascinating. And it brings us nicely to start to wrap up. And and as we start to wrap up, I'd love to hear from you about what the future looks like for research and for clinical practice in osteoarthritis and perhaps more specifically in total knee or total joint replacement? Yeah, so one of the hot topics that's continued to emerge is telerehabilitation and what's going to be the role of telerehabilitation or some of these more automated rehabilitation types of programs that are available to patients. And I think we've seen with the pandemic much greater increase in the use of telerehabilitation and data are still coming out as to how to balance telerehabilitation with in-person visits. And I think the future of our field is going to require a combination of both. Um, The telerehabilitation is very convenient for patients. It can be very cost-effective if it's used to monitor on a more regular basis, but maybe with less time per per encounter, so to speak, how someone's doing. Um, Maybe you're able to get feedback in terms of have they been compliant with their exercise program, things like that. But I think you still need some of those hands-on in-person visits, ideally, to balance and tailor a program um, going back to kind of that individualized approach to care. So another really important area as far as future directions is the use of blood flow restriction therapy. I think that's become a hot topic in our community, and it's been applied to a variety of different patient populations with much success. We have recently applied it to patients after knee replacement surgery, relatively early after surgery in a very small initial study, 
And the jury is still out, honestly, as to whether or not we see gains that are specifically due to the blood flow restriction therapy. And we're not sure if maybe the tourniquet interferes with the activation of the quadriceps muscle or what different factors are playing into the lack of a robust effect. And it's a very small initial study, but I think we need to keep our eyes open for additional studies in this area because it's been such a hot topic um, and has certainly has potential, but we just have to kind of evaluate the literature and, and the studies as they come out. And then I guess the final area for future directions is really kind of this concept that we talked about earlier with individualizing patient care, but using data-driven approaches. And uh, I would encourage people to keep their eyes open for the work that um, Dr. Andy Kittleson started um, when he was working with our group. Dr. Jeremy Graber has continued along with Dr. Mike Body to help promote in our understanding of, of how we can provide better care with these predictive analytics. We've got a lot of questions left open and a lot of people who are tackling those important clinical questions. So thank you to those folks. And Jen, I'd like to say thank you to you and your team because you, your group, among others, are really leading the way in, in some of these questions. And we talked about some of the really open research questions, clinical research questions. So things that are going to help all of us work together to better help the patients that we work with. So thank you for joining me today, Professor Jennifer Stevens-Lapsley, to walk us through what's happening now in, in rehabilitation, osteoarthritis and total joint replacement care. It was a pleasure having you on JOSPT Insights. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, we're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time. Mm-hmm.